Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Trichel, and we've got another exciting episode of With Flying Colors. Today, we're going to be talking to the author of the Credit Union Merger and Acquisition Handbook, An Insider's Guide to Credit Union Mergers. This is a NAFQ-issued document that was written by Mike Lucier of Webster Federal Credit Union in Massachusetts. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Mark. Thank you. Very good. And now, so for my listeners, Mike, if you want to give a little bit of your background in the credit union industry, then we can kind of dive into a little bit of discussion on mergers, the acquisition handbook, and wherever the conversation takes us. Sure, Mark. Thank you. Well, first and foremost, I've been with the credit union industry since 1987. I pretty much had my entire career here at Webster First Federal Credit Union when I was appointed CEO back in 1990. So I have a few years experience as a CEO. Over the past few years, I've been on the board and past chairman of uh, NAFQ, the National Association of Federal Credit Unions. Previously, when I first started my career, I was also on the Credit Union League of Mass Board, the Comb Insurance Agency Board. I've also served on various boards throughout the industry regarding the Mass Share Insurance Corporation and other major vendors, uh, organizational committees throughout the year So, or throughout my career. So at that point, I've been around quite a bit in the industry serving the credit unions. Very good. And so back when you were, I think you were president of the board and after you perhaps when you took on the challenge of writing this book. But So what led you to want to write this book for NAFQ to to get a guide out there for credit unions who are contemplating merger? Well, I had served on that board for nine years, of which one of the last two out of my last three, I was chairman. And during that time, there was quite a change in the industry or rapid succession of mergers going on. I had also a history of being able to do mergers. I had my first merger when I walked in the door back in 1987 here at Webster. Since then, I've performed 15 other merges for our institution, which I believe is probably the most more than most institutions here at Mass. Once I completed that 15th merger, and actually when I was on the board of NAFQ, I had done four merges in 100 days, and they were all successfully done. So at that point, the board had asked if I would write a publication or a book to assist others in the industry if and when needed. And I did that. As soon as I got off the board, I worked with NAFQ to create this book. Got it. Four mergers in 100 days. You're IT department with the conversions of those going on must have been excited about that opportunity. I think between them, compliance and HR, they all had their hair pulled out. So. <laughs> well, it prepared you well for future mergers and for writing this book. So the community has this book to take a look at. So a credit union is either contemplating acquiring another credit union or being acquired. What are you think the most critical items that should be looked at relative to the suitability of a partner? It's often said that merger or merger potential is always healthy or good for somebody, and it's not. One of the items that people should always look at is, you know, what is their goals and what is the goal of the other institution? 
And if there is something that is mandating or creating the necessity to merge or have to be merged, then you need to look at what are the reasons for that. And then if you are the acquiring credit union or you are the credit union that's being merged out, you need to really look at the continuity of a lot of things during this process. It's not a matter of just saying someone needs a merger partner, so let's just merge these two credit unions. Every credit union is completely different than the other. And you have to really look to see how these items can join forces to both maybe change the complexity of a balance sheet, change the interest rate risk of a balance sheet. The ALM can be all messed up if it's not done properly. But when you're going out looking for a partner, you got to really look at what are their goals? What is the strategy of the other credit union? What are they trying to do in the industry? And what are you trying to do? And is there uniformity in between those two? Those are some of the major things that I know that we always look at is who's looking to merge and why are they looking to merge? And are they something that would assist our credit union to become bigger and better? Well, and you're reminding me, I won't give any specific. When I started as an examiner, I was in the Midwest and there was a situation where a sponsor group was bought out by another sponsor group in the same industry. So ABC company was acquired by XYZ company. And they both had credit unions in the area that I was, but ABC did not want to merge into XYZ's credit union, right? So XYZ wanted to take it over, but culturally there was a divide and the takeover of the two companies was a little bit hostile. So there was some hostility there. And ultimately the ABC credit union ended up merging into another credit union in that area. So a big part of it is the cultures, what's going on with the people, the stakeholders. So That leads into something we'll probably talk about in a little while, but it's not only the stakeholders, but it's the culture of the board or the culture of the membership or the culture of the employees, right? And so, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about that now. I think it's a good time to jump into that. The board, you've got the stakeholders of the board, you've got the stakeholders of the employees, and you've got the stakeholders of the members. How do those all interrelate in this whole merger scenario? I'll probably take those three individually, Mark, if you don't mind, and talk about some of the aspects of each one, because they are three critical parts of a merger process. And within actually the book itself, I go, I think, into different chapters even on that. But I'd like to just talk about some of the specifics of each category that I think is critical that that people should be thinking of during a merger process. So we're going to start with the board, the people that have to make the decision. The board of the credit union that is being merged out has a lot of feelings going on. There's a lot of emotions, I should say, because number one, why are they merging out? And those issues of why they're merging out could be plentiful. It could be because the institution isn't successful anymore. Maybe they've had bad management and improper asset liability. Maybe there's interest rate revenue issues. Maybe NCUA doesn't like their capital position or the way that they're run and it's being mandated by NCUA. Maybe they have have a succession issue where its institutions would rather merge than trying to get a complete succession plan because there's a fellow credit union next door that can handle the membership in the proper way. There's so many reasons. But when it comes down to it, when the board of the credit union that is being merged out has to finally be told that either A, they may have a place on the existing board, or they're done. They have a feeling of have they failed. Have they filled their membership? So it's a tough thing to deal with a board of a credit union if it has failed because they don't know how to handle the process. No one's ever been through this before. 
usually on that end. So you really need to spend a lot of time with the board describing the entire process and how it's going to really benefit the membership because truly down deep, that is their fiduciary responsibility is to make sure they're making that decision that's in the best interest of the membership. So there's a lot of feelings there. And then there's a lot of things to deal with as far as is the board going to remain on the board? Will a portion of them be there? Do some of the board members want to leave? Have they had enough? The other things and the final things I'll talk about on the board side, and again, there's a lot more in the book that goes into detail, but what has the board received as benefits? And I know credit unions and non-compensated boards, but there's also travel reimbursements. And I know that there are sessions that boards go out to, conventions, uh, educational resources that they do some traveling on. Some of them have certain health insurance that may be reimbursable, permissible by NCUA regulation. And some of those things get taken away. But again, those are a minor issue, but those are other things that you would need to make sure that you address with the board. Okay? You got it. So how about the staff? The staff sure. So the and, and so then we'll move into the employees where you really got to look deep into the books of employees. And the reason why I say that is oftentimes I've seen in a merger context when I'm dealing with an institution that the employees may have off the book liabilities, such as bully plan, or they're in the fine print of the financials, employee contracts. How are your employee benefits that you're going to offer these new employees compared to the benefits these employees have? A lot of the smaller credit unions that I found have more of the mom and pop association where if you needed to take a day off, don't worry about it. We'll see you tomorrow. Or if you needed an extra few days vacation because something happened, no problem. But when you're a larger institution and you have two, three, four hundred employees and that one person always wants to take the extra day, you have to offer that to 400. So the culture is a lot more operated as a business the larger the credit union gets. So that's something that people don't realize that you have to address this with these employees and really get into the nut and bolts of what their benefit plans are versus what you're offering. On just the opposite of something like that, a credit union that is usually merging another credit union in is typically larger and can usually afford a bigger and better employee plan, whether it be the health insurance, dental plan, maybe a better priced health insurance, maybe a larger 401k concentration or participation program. They probably have additional vacation available because they can afford that. It's just those type of things you always have to look at because the employees, the first thing the employees of the credit union that's being merged in is, what's my retention? Do I have job stability? Sure. What's going to happen with my continuing salary? Am I going to have a lesser paying job or a better paying job? What's the potential? Will there be changes in my salary? Another thing I think that's really critical, of course, it's all about the first priority to all employees is retention and salary. So when a merger is taking place, you really need to get a hold of the books of what the employees have been paid. Have they been given some substantial increases recently right prior to merger that you should be aware <laughs> of? I found that in 30% of the credit unions that that happens, believe it or not. 30%, wow. 30% wow. that I've been through have had additional increases totally above normal prior to merger when I've gone in to say that I'll retain your existing salary. So have, I've have always you ever, addressed that. 
I've always addressed it and always asked to go back three years worth of everybody's last raise increases. And I adjust that accordingly after we discuss that with the employees. But it needs to be addressed. Do you ever in those negotiations have an agreement that they can't raise anybody's salary in the three month courtship period or anything like that? As soon as I get involved, again, during my due diligence process, I have asked, I automatically ask for the last two years raise. Right. But I do specifically state that there'll be no increases at this time without at least talking to me about you it. Got so it. That I'm yeah. aware. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got 100%. it. Hundred percent. But a lot of people. I have two friends here in Massachusetts that just recently have been through this, and they didn't do that process, and now they wish they would have. Sure. And then you have the cultural issues of someone comes over and they have the same job responsibilities at the merging credit union, and they're getting paid more than the surviving credit union and may not have the same level of experience and all that. So that whole equity thing that you mentioned, I always had in the front of my mind when I was executive director at NCUA was do for one, do for all. If I'm going to make it, the exception becomes the rule. So you really got to be careful in all of that. The other thing is with the employees, you got to also talk though about when are you going to do this conversion, right? If my salary is going to stay the same, but my benefits are going to change, when is that going to take place? Sure. And again, there is no exact in line, oh, it has to happen in 30 days. There's a process. Some of the vendors they might have just signed up with health insurance may be already on the register till December. Maybe there's a renewal date of June or January. You need to look at the contracts of each one of the benefits to see maybe sometimes it's cheaper to run that health insurance all the way to the end of maturity than to cancel it earlier and offer them a new product. So those are the little things that you'd have to watch for. I think One of the other most important parts, though, that I found that can be the costly factor, again, handling the employees between your HR, doing it professionally, making sure what they have and where they're going is easy. What you really have to look for that can cost you a lot of money is what happens to the 457F programs, the 403B programs, the payouts of those. Maybe there's a bully program in place for those employees or senior executives that are not specifically stated on the financial statement. I have seen improper accounting for specific retirement programs for key employees. I've also seen seven months before the trigger was pulled to decide to merge that bully programs and 457F programs were put in place. Sure. And as those will state, as soon as there's a significant change in management and or the board, those programs get paid out. And typically, the payout of those are far beyond what any institution has even accrued because the institution really couldn't afford it because they didn't have enough capital to begin with. That's why they're merging. So those are the things that I've seen cost institutions millions of dollars, not hundreds, but millions of dollars on payouts because of improper review of off-the-balance sheet liabilities for employee liabilities. So I think that's important. In that regard, we would often at NCUA get asked, hey, you know, how do I find out, you know, all these credit unions merge? Why don't you, why doesn't NCUA alert me when, and NCUA has what's called a merger registry where you can say, I'm interested in, you know, all of Massachusetts. I'm interested in all of the East Coast or what have you. But the reality is NCUA is, other than approving on the back end, NCUA and or the state regulators really aren't involved in the courtship. The courtship happens 
you know, at league functions. It happens at the golf course. It happens at, hey, let's chat. You know, if you ever want to merge, I might be interested. In some arenas, there's a belief that NCUA is involved in more of those than they are. But then flipping that coin, were you ever involved in anywhere there was like NCUA assistance that was being a troubled institution, maybe with less than 4% net worth, where NCUA was actually shopping it? And so the merging credit union had a little bit less control because if NCUA was going to be paying some money, they were going to most likely pick the cheapest bid. So I won't mention the specific credit union, but yes, I was involved heavily with one of those in Boston. Okay. A massive, as a former state credit union that went federal, we basically had a certain county. In my case, Webster First Federal Credit Union had Worcester County in Massachusetts. I could not outreach beyond the county because of the way the field of membership and the rules and regulations were set back then. With that stated, the only way you could automatically just extend your field of membership, and it was only really one way, was if there was, I always say, an NCUA-assisted merger, I called it in my terms, but it's where NCUA had to take over an institution because there was no other alternative, and then it had to find a merging partner where then it went through publicly and announced it. And other credit unions, including myself, were given the opportunity to come in and do due diligence review the process, make an offer to NCUA to see if, how much NCUA would either A, give us or how much we would take it over for and then go from there. And so we actually did that quite a few years ago, about 12 years ago, I think it was. And we've expanded our field of membership through Middlesex, Essex and Suffolk County, including the whole city of Boston. That was one of the probably the key benefits of doing that. Absolutely. Um, but that's probably one of the only benefits, because typically when NCUA gets involved, that credit union is in pretty bad shape. And you better have either A, the net worth, the efficiencies, or the financial ability to take over that additional risk. And that's yeah. where NCUA really looks at. Totally agree. If you do get that field of membership, it can be a great scenario. And the NCUA technical term is emergency merger. So if they can define it in an emergency, which is a clause in the Federal Credit Union Act, then they can let... It doesn't matter what field of membership of credit union A and B is, they can actually let you add that field of membership. And they've also extrapolated the definition of what an emergency is. I believe now, if you can demonstrate that the credit union would be insolvent within two or three years because of how that credit union is operating, they can deem it an emergency. It, they've stretched that envelope probably about as far as they can and still being within the you know the rules of the Federal Credit Union Act. But that is a great- I, I know they're a little nervous right now with these changing interest rate environments and all these compliance risk and IT stuff. And I get it. There is a lot of institutions that are struggling out there. And some of the ones are going to be very successful, but some others are still going to continue to have problems in this industry. Yeah, that's a fact. So I've got a podcast that's posting tomorrow it's just me talking about some articles I've been reading about bank mergers and credit union mergers. But bank mergers, because of stock prices having gone down and because of investment values, portfolios having gone down, there's actually a slowdown in bank mergers because the math doesn't work as well. And what I'm anticipating is because the acquired credit union is going to have to write those hold the maturity portfolios down they're going to have to realize that loss when there is a merger. I think that could actually speed up the number of credit union mergers that are coming down the pike. And any any thoughts on that? Sure. I think one of the items uh, regarding 
the financials in our industry. Um, I, when I started back in 1987, there were 19,800 or 19,900 credit unions. And when I was teaching down in Annapolis a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the notice of uh, or the amount of credit unions right now in the industry is about 4,850. Yeah. So it's typically about 25% of what it was when I started my career. Sure. And that continues. But there's only so many mergers left, right? There's no more, you know, 300 a year because at that point we'd be out of the industry. But it is, there is a continuance of the need to review the credit unions that are merging. I know in Massachusetts, I just did a study here, and I want to say 18% of the credit unions were making either 10 basis points or less, of which 15% of the industry was in the red before these interest rate changes. So right, right. it's interesting to watch how people are handling this. And some of the institutions have changed and made dramatic uh, managerial changes and operational changes. So they're coming out of it. But there's going to be a continued need to review the merger process over the next five or 10 years. That's a fact. And I, you know, I was looking at some numbers before we got on and for that other podcast that I just did, but 146 mergers of credit unions through September. If you annualize that, it comes out to about 194 for 2022, which is an increase from 161 last year, or said another way, about a 20% increase in 2022, if you look at what's happening so far. So it's it's picking up a little bit. It's not, it's not the, the 300s that you're saying, but they might hit 200 this year, which yeah. is a Oh, back, step I, I want to say back in 2017 or 16, there was one a day, six or seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Sure, sure. So, so let's talk about the members. We haven't touched on the members because we saved them for last because they're the most important. They're what it's all about. What are your thoughts relative to mergers and members? Well, I guess when when we look at it and we look to the final result of everything we've just talked about, it actually it boils down to what's in it for the members. And that's why you're doing this. The members own the credit unions, not us. The employees work for the institution. They work for the members indirectly. And the board just basically runs the show and sets the policy by which we all run. So the members are the ultimate beneficiaries of the decisions being made by that board of directors and our staff and our senior management team. So it's important to make sure that they're notified. The process I've seen where the members have been in turmoil and they've gone to the special meetings and they've caused all kinds of disruption because they like the way things were. What they don't understand is the financial capabilities don't allow for them to continue in the way that they were. Sure. So with that stated, it's important to make sure the members know what is happening from almost the beginning of time. I think that the board and the employees, uh, or actually the board and management staff of both organizations that is taking over and the credit union that is being taken over, need to make sure that at the management and board side that there's a mutual agreement how, how they want to see something done before it gets out to the membership. Because they need to at least make sure there's a mutual meeting of the minds, for the better way to say it, I guess, to make sure that it's going to continue before you cause disruption among the ranks. With that stated, once there's an agreement of how things are going to happen or would like to be happening, then the members should be notified through the regulatory process. They need to be notified. There needs to be an acceptance by them at a meeting. I think that at the meeting, I have always found that at that special meeting is where you can sell this program. 
You need to make sure that they are aware that there's probably better efficiencies coming. You probably have a better access at your accounts through modernization, more money spent on technology, better applications, better online access, better online banking, better probably a larger field of membership to be served from within the communities, so on and so forth. That if you can really market that at that meeting and demonstrate how the members are going to benefit, and hopefully they will, that if you can demonstrate to the members of how they're going to benefit through this process, then your succession rate of getting accepted by the members increases tenfold. So we've always tried to do that. I've always tried to make sure even myself, I'm at the meeting, I'm here to answer all their questions. But once that happens, you feel that you're going to get approval, you have to go through the voting process. So again, marketing the voting, do handling at the branches, at special meetings, sending out the proper documentation, the adverts that are going out either online or in the mail, the establishing the pros and cons and getting a beautiful list to demonstrate to the members who are yet to vote of showing them what's going to be coming in their favor is a critical part to making all that work. And then when it's all done, you have to prove that point. (laughs) And so that's why after post-merger, it's very important that you maintain what you promised and that you show them the efficiencies take place and that the membership at the end basically gets what they were expecting. And hopefully that's bigger and better services and products. And I imagine a lot of times there's the products, there's the services, but if I have the ability to go to one, two, three main street and have my branch office down there, you get a lot of questions about what about the branches, right? So what kind of situations, obviously they want you to commit that branch is always going to be there, but you might have one a mile and a half away. Correct. What kind of scenarios have you seen relative to that? Well, I'd like to actually address that. I also want to make sure that we maybe just talk briefly on branding a little bit after that. Absolutely. Yeah. So so very quickly on the branch side, we've had to close branches that were next door because you don't need two branches side by side. But we always have committed that the existing branches would always remain open for six months to a year because it doesn't cost you that much that you're going to bleed out the organization by keeping it open for an extra six months to a year. Right. But it's, it's during that time that you make the proper transition, which we'll talk about the continuation of branding in a few minutes. But the idea is to keep the services as much the same as possible while you're transitioning all the other services like online bill pay, debit cards, credit cards, new checking accounts, online access, all those things that members are being affected on, you try to keep as much stability into the process as possible because you're constantly making changes on the other side. So that's what we've always done and been able to do. But it's always a question is not only the branches leaving, but what happens about Susie Q, who's been my main head teller, that's been my best friend for the last 10 years. What's happening with her? Well, what's happening to all the staff members? The members usually have that question. So again, the whole thing is retention for a period of time to keep the same, and then you have to address them as you go along of what's the best interest of the organization. So the branches itself is key. Yeah, so you wanted wanted to go back and talk about the branding, and so the transition from from two cultures to two brands. and, and And I keep this somewhat simple, but... One of the things we've had a very good success rate at was retention. 
throughout our, our whole merger is to make sure that we retain 90% or more of the members when we're done. And how are we going to do that? We have done that for the last seven consecutive merges, and we can prove that. And the same token is that one of the things that really helped us was to learn a little trick on branding. I see people come in and say, oh, this credit union is merged. We're proud of that. The day that the merger takes place, that's their name. And boom, now they got a new name. So everybody gets confused. Some of the members don't read all their mail. They don't. They sure as heck don't all go to the annual meeting. Sure. And the same token is that there's a lot of brand awareness. They don't open up their mail. Some of them are online, haven't got access, or you're in their spam. One of the key things we have always done was to keep the name on the building right. as long as possible. And also on the statements, We've tried to co-brand the names. I always put the old one first and ours in the bottom, but have one bold higher than the other. Because there's a transition when you're going from credit union A to credit union B. Sure. We are proud to say, oh, we want our name on everything, but we also know it takes a six-month period to get there. So you slowly evolve because when you talk about branding, people are saying, am I going to credit union A's website or credit union B's website? Who's the boss here? What's happening? There's a lot of unknowns. We slowly migrate that in with little pieces every month. Maybe there's a dual-sided letter that went out. Maybe it's a double-headed letter to let them know that we're both the same. And finally, they get to see the brand and the logo of the credit union, the parent credit union over time to the point that they get it. You don't just slam the new parents logo in front of everybody and say, come and accept us. They got to read this branding in little pieces and realize that it's coming to the point that in six months after they've logged on to your app, and they've logged on to your website now because every time you went to the old credit union's website, it automatically fed you to the new one. After a while, that branding becomes automatic and that old credit union name goes away. Sure. But don't get caught up in pounding your chest saying, oh, look, we just did a merger and slam that down on their marketing right away in front of the old members because they retaliate against that a little bit. So sure. walk it in, walk your branding in, Make sure they're aware of it. They'll come to accept it. It takes time in six months to a year is pretty much the process to the point that we even would say we would change the logo in the front of the building, keep their old logo saying a division of Webster and Mockers. Right. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. I'd say division of Webster first, but in six months from now, I tell the board, your, your face is still out there. But in six months, that's going to be our logo in front of your building. And so that's been very acceptable. Yeah, I think it was Shakespeare who said, what's in a name, right? Well, a lot's in a name. And then you you add that to change. People don't like change. So you're familiarizing them with you and letting Mm -hmm. them transition from the old to the new. That sounds like a real wise Real wise. Take your time. There is no, the most important part is to make sure the conversion and the backroom conversion and processes are done correctly and efficiently. The last thing you got to worry about is changing the name on a branch. Right, 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 right. So all of that, most of that deals with, you know, what happens before the merger. You kind of tiptoed into the branding and what happens after the merger. Any other thoughts about what happens after? The regulators have approved, the credit union members have approved, the boards have approved, obviously, and now you're one unit and you're one month past when the two joined the forces officially, but that's really not the end. That's just the beginning. What else plays out? 
Well, once again, everything is at that point, it's all a lot of backroom items and operations that have to be addressed. So now you're talking about the major items are addressing all the off-sheet balance sheet items I talked about, but looking at any type of vendor buyouts, notification of closing vendors that you're not going to use any longer, making sure that all those have been converted and changed over or in the process. How is that going to happen? Getting through that process. In the old days when I did a merger, I had a core processor. That's all I had to worry about was a core processor. They did it handled my deposits and it handled my consumer loan portfolio. Today you have mortgage processes, you have vendors that handle your commercial lending, your debit cards, your ATM cards, your online banking, your remote deposits, your applications, your core processor itself, your Equifax and credit reporting processes, your loan applications. Everybody has a million vendors today. Every one of those vendors have a separate contract. Every one of them have a certain liability payout if you break that contract. So how is the conversion? Is it the same vendor that you're already using? So maybe you can make a deal that there is no other, or are you changing over from one to another? So with that stated, that's a lot of the items that have to be taken care of after the merger that the members don't see, but they're going to ultimately be affected by the results of each one of them. So you have to always be remembering how quick can I change this, but how many changes can the member have during this process and in what sequence is best for the membership. So all those items need to be taken care of, even getting back to your ATM, who makes the ATM cards, what check process, who do you buy your checks from? Is it Harlan? Is it Deluxe? Is it online? So there's a lot to handle. And I just can't state enough that all the contracts are put on the plate of somebody during the due diligence process. And I've always mandated that I want a complete library of every vendor that they use, what are the contract dates, and that somebody in my due diligence process has reviewed all those, and we know what liabilities are in front of us pre and post-merger. And we handle them accordingly. So those are the major things I think that have to handle. I think that was your question, Mark, regarding yes. post-merger. You got it. Yeah. And you reminding me of, you know, so I conserved a lot of credit unions in my many different roles at NCUA from small ones all the way up to U.S. Central and Westcore. And one of those first things NCUA always does is try and get their arms around what contracts are out there. Do they have a good log of the contracts? Oftentimes you think you know what all the contracts are until the Vendor calls you, right? And it's like, <laughs> hey, hey, Mark, uh, Mark here's, here's a key point. You know, we laughed earlier and said, watch what the, happens to the employee's salaries prior to merger because the board always wants to take care of them, right? Right, right. Well, also, as soon as any, and, and this is like wildfire, but as soon as any vendor realizes that you're even contemplating a merger, they know that, number one, you're probably hurting. So they're going to come in, and I've seen this so many times, so many times it's unbelievable, where they'll come into the credit union and say, listen, you need to make some more money. I'm going to give you half price on this product. So your debit cards are now going to charge you, I'm making a number up, one cent a piece instead of two cents. If you're going to save 50% fee, and we're going to sign a five-year contract with you. That way... You immediately make a short-term gain, but it's a long-term loss for the credit unit that right. takes it over. Yeah. Yeah. And I have walked in so many times where the major contracts were signed during this process, right. and I have to eat the last five-year buyout of it. So I always tell people, like I do with the salaries, 
Once we start talking, there is no other further vendor discussions or right, contracts right, right. to be signed. But that doesn't happen out there. It does not happen. And so that's a very key, very expensive opportunity for someone to fall into if they're not careful. Sure. No, that's a great point. I'm glad we got that in here. So I'm sure there's a question or two that I should have already asked, but haven't. Have I left out any important question, Mike, that I should have asked before we wrap up here? No, Mark, not that I can think of. I will just say, though, that in final note, that when it's all said and done and everything's completed, that it's very key that the marketing continues strong for both the branding part aspect, we talked about it, and to always talk about the additional benefits that you've actually brought to the table for the benefit of the membership. Very good. That's a great place to wrap. And Mike, if someone wanted to get in touch with you and or figure out how to get a copy of the NAFQ uh, book that we talked about, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? As far as getting in touch with me, they can always get in touch with me at mlushier, that's M-L-U-S-S-I-E-R at websterfirst.com. Or they can call me at 508-671-5051. And as far as the book is concerned, they can always purchase a book right off the site of NAFQ at nafcu.org. Fantastic. Mike, I want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on your 30, 40 years in credit unions and the mergers that led you to write the book and sharing some of that with my audience today. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. You got it. And this is Mark Treichel signing off with another episode of With Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 